You're listening to Hey, welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Michael Yeh. And I'm Rira Yu. And on this episode, we have an author interview with Sonia Lali, the author of the book, Serena Singh Flips the Script. Uh, we had a really great conversation with her about her book, about her journey as an author, and about um, representation in the page and media. Rira, what's um, Serena Singh Flips the Script about? Uh, So Serena Singh Flips the Script is about a smart, confident, and uh, just pretty much a kick-ass Indian-American woman in her mid-30s who is at the top of her advertising firm in Washington, D.C., um, after her sister gets married and, you know, is about to have a kid, she realizes that uh, she doesn't really have that many friends anymore because her best uh, best friend was her sister. And now she believes that her sister won't have time for her uh, because she's pregnant and getting um, um, becoming prepared for a family life. So this book is mostly about uh, learning to make friends in your adulthood, uh, the struggles that come with it, uh, and the difficulties of sustaining old friendships and old relationships. Uh, So it's more about, I would say it's like more of a friend rom-com. Like, have you seen the movie I Love You, Man? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of like that where (laughs) it, not a bromance, but uh, uh, what would you call it? Like a I mean, just what, I mean, as what a, is equivalent a, to a bromance? Of it's a it's a, well, I don't know a friend a, friend man a friend com a friend man it's a friend, yeah, a friend com. com yeah yeah it's as someone who is in their late thirties and um no longer has the benefit of like school or grad school um, or clubs to you know make friends I totally relate to this premise because I feel like. Especially in this age of COVID, I haven't really even talked to some of my old friends in a long time. So um, I'm sure there's been other books with this premise, but I just love it so much. It's it's so it's so relatable, you know, especially now, like you said, (laughs) because of COVID, it's so hard to maintain friendships, right? Uh, People you used to see every day in person. Now they're now they're just pixels (laughs) on a screen and it's easy to just shut them out. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely a relatable uh, theme, making new friends and uh, <laughs> learning how to keep old ones uh, in in your 30s. Yeah. So coming up is our conversation with Sonia Lolly. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Marvin. If you're like me, being cooped up indoors for almost a year, you've been snacking a lot. And while I enjoy the snacks I get at the local supermarket, sometimes I just really crave some Asian snacks. That's why I'm super excited that Irvin's Salted Egg Chips are now available in the U.S. In case you haven't heard of Irvin's before, they are Singapore's number one snack 
made with real salted duck egg that's been brined for 30 days, then steam cooked and hand mixed into the chips. And on top of that, they're also seasoned with real salted duck egg yolks, fresh curry leaves, and red pepper diced right into the bag. Their chips also have a spicy variant that um, really does bring the heat, believe me. I've been hooked on Urban's ever since I discovered their booth at Taipei 101 a couple years ago, and there hasn't been a trip to Taiwan where I haven't brought at least one or two bags back with me, smuggled in my suitcase. But those days are over now that Urban's is available in the States. You can order yourself some Urban's salted egg chips by going to the website eatirvins.com. That's eatirvins.com. And use the promo code BOOKSANDBOBA, all caps, for free shipping on any order. The website again is eatirvins.com. And the promo code for free shipping is BOOKSANDBOBA, all caps. And we're here with author Sonia Lali, um, the author of the book, Sonia Singh Flips the Script which just came out last week. Welcome to the show, Sonia. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. We've talked to so many Asian authors, and it's always amazing to hear how everyone's path to becoming an author is so different. Um, I just wanted to also add, um, for a lot of Asian American authors and Asian diasporan authors, they don't discover that an, that being an author is an occupation. They don't know that it's a job, that it's uh, an actual career path for them. So when... Uh, when did you realize that being an author was possible? Yeah, so that's a that's a good point, and one that um, is definitely true in my case. So I think with a lot of like um, with immigrant parents, regardless of where you're where they came from, like when you come to a new country, there's this craving for security and building up the family and this and power and status and all these and things to make a life in a new country. So I mean, often career paths are very much you need to be a doctor or an accountant or a lawyer, things that are very defined and very stable and will guarantee a you know an income to make your family get get them what they want. So that's definitely how my parents brought me up to. And it wasn't malicious by any means. It was just sort of, um, you know, they want what's best for me and they they understand that these career paths will get me security. So that's what they want for me. So yeah, I grew up um, always loving reading and writing, not really understanding that writing and working in publishing, which I also do, um, is a possible career path. I went to law school uh, in my hometown of Saskatoon, uh, Saskatchewan. I live in Canada. And um, I went on and like worked for a year. And after that, I kind of went, I was 25 and I kind of didn't feel like I was ready to just, you know, work in the same office the rest of my life. I had done things very quickly and very straight and narrow. And I kind of sold the idea of moving to the UK and pursuing a writing and publishing uh, program as kind of a gap year for my parents. I kind of said, okay, you know what, I've... Um, I've done sort of the right thing and now I want to uh, try something else for a year. And that's how I sold it to them. And they were very supportive. Um, they also were always very supportive of my writing aspirations. I think they understood that I did have something to fall back on, um, which I think helped garner their support. Anyways, I moved to the UK and I did this um, one year writing and publishing program. So half the classes were to sort of help me um, develop my writing skills. And that's where I, when I wrote my first book. And the other part was to um, set me up with some skills to actually work in the publishing um, field. And so, yeah, that's how I sort of got to that place. And then I ended up staying on in the UK for two more years and working at a legal publisher during the day. And um, during my free time, I would work on my book. And I went through that whole process of trying to find an agent and then a publisher. Um, 
yeah, so that's kind of <laughs> how it happened. Yeah, it's always great to have like that game plan when you approach Asian parents about creative careers. Like, <laughs> I have a backup. If needed, we can get a a real job. But <laughs> <laughs> a real job, quote unquote, for sure. <laughs> There's definitely a, a not a trend, but there's definitely a club for um, Asian diasporan writers who went to law school or worked as uh, lawyers, and then they decided to pivot into becoming uh, writers. It's something that uh, we've noticed as we've interviewed other authors on this podcast, and I find that like really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think law for me was, I mean, I was never really good or that re- interested in science and math. I mean, I, I did it, but I didn't really, it wasn't natural to me. And so law kind of, I think law is sort of the field that a lot of creative people and people who like writing and critical thinking, they gravitate to that sort of field. Um, maybe that that's one reason I know, I know that's why I chose law versus sort of a different career path. You've spoken a lot about your own multicultural background and feeling the pressure of representation, feeling rep sweats about whether you're representing your your communities well. And, you know, it's become a talking point for Asian American representation that Asia is not a monolith. There's lots of different kinds of Asians and you yourself have a mixed heritage, even within, you know, the Desi diaspora. Now that you've released your third novel, has your relationship with your your own heritage and representation, has that developed at all? Um. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when I wrote the Matchmakers list, I for sure didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I um, I didn't, I guess I was trying to figure it out as I went along. And when I wrote that book seven years ago, I didn't, I didn't really understand like how I felt about myself. I think a lot of us grew up just sort of accepting that we're not really in, um, in media, we're not really in books, uh, or we're not we're not represented. And so when I so when I wrote the matchmakers list, I kind of understand that it stood that I was doing something that was kind of new, and I did feel the burden to be like, okay, there aren't really that many rom coms with a South Asian lead. Like, is that like how are going to people going to feel about this? Um, I definitely have more confidence that I don't need to right to everyone's experience because there are there is more representation obviously there's like a huge like a really long way to go but there is more representation and there should be more representation because that's the only the way that we're actually going to have everybody's experiences and and looks and backgrounds sort of reflected in in culture so yeah i think i think more confidence to just sort of write what i know i am uh, you know, my mom's side of the family is Bengali and they were, uh, they're Hindu. Um, the, my dad's side of the family is Punjabi and they're Sikh. And I grew up very much both in equal measure. And I've um, sort of sort of picked different parts of myself and my background to sort of express and elaborate on in each of my books. Um, and then maybe one day I will write a book that sort of represents exactly who I am in this mixed way. But but I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible to write every experience, right? Because like Marvin said, it's not a monolith. And um, the thing is, like, when people think uh, brown women and romantic comedy, immediately their thought goes to Bollywood or arranged marriage. Uh, There's this stereotype that that's the only thing that romance writers can write about. And... These stereotypes, I mean, they're very much stereotypes, but they come from they come from truth. They come from an actual, um, I guess, cultural 
route. And um, I just wanted to ask, like, because your first novel, it has to do with matchmaking. And um, did you feel any conflict in, in terms of, like, playing into stereotype or writing something that people would uh, think would be a stereotype? Yeah, I mean, I felt a little bit weird about it for two reasons. One is that a lot of some of the publicity questions I got were sort of like, you know, why is arranged marriage so common? Or, um, you know, they were asking me questions like, not why do you think, but asking me to answer for like an entire population of, you know, why we have arranged marriage or why some communities do. Um, Yeah, I mean, you're right that it does come from somewhere. Arranged marriage does exist, right? Like it's it's true for so many people I know from my grandparents. Uh, it and we can't like it's not good to, to to talk about it in a stereotypical way, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Like stere- your stereotypes have a grain of truth to them, and that we just need to um, make sure that the stereotypes aren't the only thing about our culture and about our love life that are portrayed. All right, let's talk about your newest novel. Serena Singh flips the script, which just released last week. Congratulations, by the way. Um, I know. Oh, thank um, you. I feel like releasing a book during COVID is, it makes an already tough endeavor even tougher, but uh, congrats on, on your third book. Um, oh, thank you. Can you let our listeners know uh, what your story is about? Yeah, so um, for Serena Singh flips the script, I was. It started out for me as writing a romantic comedy about finding your new best friend. Um, I wanted to flip the script, so to speak, on this idea that uh, romantic companies need to be about romantic relationships. Um, I am in my 30s, moving to a new city. I found that um, it was pretty hard to make new, genuine friendships. Everyone's so busy. Everyone already has their friends. And so I wanted to talk about um, how it was really like dating if you want to find someone new in your life when you're older, a new good friend, you kind of have to put in the work. You kind of have to form, um, put in a lot of work to form and cement a good friendship and how much work that is. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to to think about in that book was um, the idea that um, we need to find a partner and we need to get married and have children in order to have our happily ever, ever after um, because that's not true. And in my first two books, I had um, I had leading women who who did want marriage and did want children. And I thought it would be really good to talk about a woman who has focused on her career, has no regrets about not getting married and about not having children, and is still very happy with her own life or thinks she's very happy with her own life. Um, so I wanted to, to talk about that stereotype and that cultural expectation that we need to get married and have children to have a have domestic bliss. Yeah, I think for um, like for a lot of women past a certain age, uh, good news or happiness is equal to having children or uh, getting married. And you have to be very careful uh, because, you know, if your friends, if most of them are married and they have children and you say, hey, I, I have good news and the good news is being promote, promoted or some other professional accomplishment, uh, it, people just automatically assume that, you know, you either got married or um, are pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And I've actually had that exact same experience because... Um, you know, the the year before the matchmakers list came out in North America, I was planning my wedding and um, I kept having like these really 
great things happening with my book and everybody just wanted to talk about my wedding. wedding. And I was like, I'm sorry. I love my, I love my now husband, but I am way more excited about this book, right? This professional thing. And even now, um, you know, I'm, I've been married a couple of years and um, I, anytime that I have to tell somebody news, I can't be ambiguous at the start. I can't be like, Hey, guess what? Like you said, I have to like very quickly jump to the news. Otherwise people think that I'm announcing my pregnancy when um, I, I, and it's really frustrating to have that expectation on you and, and to assume that, um, that's the only thing on my mind or that a woman in her thirties who is, does not have a family, that it's a default that's happened by default. And that, that's not an active choice. And so I really liked, wanted to like, sort of look at these expectations, um, in the book. Yeah. Don't people know that you can be just as happy for your professional baby than an absolute uh, baby? The, the, sure. the answer is no, Marvin. <laughs> people people don't know that. I, I love the fact that your characters, uh, not just in this book, uh, but in your previous two book, uh, Matchmakers List and uh, Grown Up Pose, your women are older. You have a 29-year-old and you also have uh, someone who is a young mom in their 30s. And Serena is 36, I believe. Um, in this book. Um, and it, like, I don't know why, maybe it's because I have my, my reading scope, like my horizons need to be expanded, but I haven't read that many books where the, the main character is a woman who is in their 30s. Um, I feel like society and also literature, they like to perpetuate this myth that uh, by the time you're 30, you're done growing up. And that is so far from the truth, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm I'm almost 32 and I don't feel like I'm a grown-up yet. Um, I think that we I think it's good to have books and literature that reflect all ages and all situations. This idea that um we, you know, once we're done college and we've been working for years, we we need to get married is just preposterous. Actually, the whole reason I had the idea of the matchmakers list initially was because um, I remember it being summer and it was wedding season and I was going to a bunch of big Desi weddings and um, I had was working um, and I had just finished law school. And I remember like getting some looks and, um, it, you know, some questions to my family and, you know, like this is the thing that needs that that I need to think about now, and and it just really I have a, come from a very progressive community, but I still felt it happening, and I and I really sort of um, pushed back against it. Thirty two is very young, by the way. <laughs> um, it is. It's all perspective. <laughs> I mean, like when when we're younger, we're like, oh, thirty. That's like ancient. Like I can never be thirty years old. But uh, as you get older, thirty, thirty two. 36 it's not even that old totally <laughs> i mean i'm already i'm almost 37 and everyone is young now it's i'm to the point where i'm just everyone everyone is oh kids these days I know. you know <laughs> <It's bad. laughs> totally yeah i i feel really young but then i sort of try and understand some of these um trends from the next generation and i'm not following and i'm like oh my god i am i maybe i am a little bit old <laughs> it's like oh god what is tiktok how do i use it <laughs> exactly i'm not on tiktok but maybe i should be so we we just talked about like how we're not done growing up by the time we're 30 and you talked about how hard it is to find new people uh, when you move to a new city for example um and serena goes through that same struggle uh she tries to make new friends through an app, through mixers, a book club, a cooking class, and 
all of these end in complete disaster. I mean, they're hilarious. Uh, Were any of those episodes based on real life? And if not, uh, what is the most awkward adult friendship activity you've had to endure? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I exaggerated everything in the book. Luckily, I didn't have any of those exact experiences. Um, I have gone to a book club meeting where nobody knew each other. And um, it really, I'm trying to describe a way to feel like, it, it just felt like it was just the most awkward experience I've had because I felt like we were all there to make friends, but everybody was too nervous to talk to each other, at least the people sitting right in my area. And once you sit down at one of these things, it's not like you can go and be like, actually, I'm going to go sit over there. Cause this, you know, that's just, that's just kind of rude, right? Like I would, I'd rather just not make any friends and be rude to like nice, quiet strangers. Um, so that, that was actually uh, pretty awkward. I mean, now that you're an author, uh, <laughs> I'm just like thinking about that situation where you go and and you say, uh, and, and someone says, "I don't like your book," and that's that's just really awkward. I hope I hope that never happens to you. I hope you're not invited to a book club and and someone says that they don't like your book. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, they're totally within their right, but maybe I'll just come for half the book club, and after I leave, they can people who don't like it can uh, can talk about it. Yeah, so why why do you think that it's so hard for uh, people in their 30s to make new friends, right? Because, um, you know, like, w- we're supposed to have developed our social skills by them, supposed to being, <laughs> being the key word. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think when, um, when you're younger, like, people in your class, for example, in school, you just spend so much time to each other that even if, um, even if you don't have a lot in common, uh, you just spend so much time with each other. It's you, you gain so many experiences together and these sort of form, uh, this great basis for friendship. Same with, um, you know, in university and also same with, um, you know, starting maybe at a new job where there's lots of young people and you just work together all the time and naturally become friends. But creating a friendship out of a thin air, out of thin air with someone who you might only meet at a yoga class or at a book club, you sort of have this sort of one-off encounter. And even if there's chemistry and even if you hit it off, it takes effort to sort of exchange phone numbers, follow up, uh, organize, organize another meeting. And then even that meeting, you still don't know each other that well. You've only met for an hour. And that second meeting, again, requires a lot of effort to build even more and then organize a third meeting. So it just takes way much, way more effort to even get to a place where you can feel familiar and comfortable with someone. And it's way easier to just go back to your other, to just hang out with the friends you already have or with your partner or with your family, rather than put in the effort to find new people to to have this connection with. So in the book, Serena is finding, finding that she doesn't actually have any strong connections that she can rely on anymore because um, one, her little sister is is married and um, now pregnant and Serena thinks that she's too busy for her. And Serena's 36 and a lot of her friends have chosen conventional paths and are busy with their families and their jobs and their partners and don't have a lot of time for Serena, or at least that's how Serena perceives it. Um, so it's only at this point when she can't fall back on these other um, easier long-term friendships that she realizes she needs to actually put in the work to find some new ones. 
yeah, that effort is it's hard, but it's not it's not impossible. I feel like um, it's a good thing this book didn't take place during the COVID lockdown because I feel like this past year I've become so just bad at keeping in touch with people. I just want to I just want to post up in my room and just not socialize <laughs> at all. <laughs> Definitely, especially in the spring. I mean, there was, um, you know, my groups of friends where the silver lining was that uh, at, at least at the beginning, people were putting in from in my group more effort to do Zoom calls and jack, jackpot games and and things like that, which was great because um, a lot of my close friendships from when I was younger, are they were in different cities and I wouldn't have otherwise spent that time with them. But yeah, it can be, especially this has been going on for a year. We don't, we don't do that anymore. It, it becomes this new routine um, again so quickly. Yeah, no, totally. Same, same with us. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a quote in your book that just sums up that effort really well. Um, I'm just going to read it. Uh, Not every friendship or relationship, family or otherwise, could be a two-way street. With some, you took more than you gave. And with others, well... They got your heart and your soul, and you picked up whatever scraps you could find. And I think that is so true. Not all relationships will be um, w- w- will be equal. You will um, you will have to compromise. Every relationship is a compromise, and you have to decide what is enough for you. Um, but speaking of friendships, I wanted to talk more about Ainsley. Uh, she's such a firecracker. And um, really, I think she's the real love interest in yeah. this book. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit more about how you develop Ainsley as a character and how you made her compatible with Serena? Hmm. Well, one of the things, one of the motivations in developing that relationship was that I wanted them to be real with each other and to be the ones who can call out each other's um, prejudices and each other's flaws and sort of have that honesty with each other. So uh, Serena um, has a real, um, is really judgy about married women with children. She kind of writes them off as soon as uh, her friends have gotten married and had kids because she just assumes that um, they're they're not going to have anything in common anymore, uh, and those women aren't going to have aren't going to be interested in Serena's life anymore. And while that's happened a little bit, like she just she completely writes writes off Ainsley when she first meets her, and Ainsley invites her to a drink, and Serena says no because she just assumes that this is going to be like whatever. Ainsley's not real friend potential; she's a mom, right? Uh, similarly, uh, Ainsley has uh, has is a um, a woman who has been divorced. Uh, she's mar- now married to an Indian guy with a very traditional father-in-law who doesn't approve of Ainsley and they have a small child and Ainsley's trying to learn Punjabi and she really has conflicting feelings of trying to like impress her in-laws and Serena calls her out and says, why are you trying to, you know, you're so cool. You're so independent. You don't tell any, let anyone tell you what to do. Why are you doing things to please your father-in-law? You know, why are you bending over backwards? And so this honesty was like always a thread and building up to the fight that they have later in the book um, that sort of tests that sort of tests them. Uh, the other thing about them is that I, Serena is really um, she's really fun and she just she really likes playful people. Both of Serena's love interests in the book are quite fun and playful. And I thought that it was important to have, you know, her friends also sort of be that, um, 
be the type of person who can, you know, you can be serious with, but you also just have a lot of fun together. I, I just want to say I mispronounce uh, Ainsley's oh, name. Oh no, that's okay. that's okay. Um, I, I I hope I didn't pr- mispronounce Ainsley's no, no, name. It's, it's a thing with reading books, right? Because if you're not listening to the audiobook, you just you just have to go with whatever pronunciation you come up with when, when sure, you're reading yeah. to yourself. Yeah, I mean Harry Potter. I thought Hermione was uh, Hermione for the longest time. Oh until, my god, until I the thought movie it was. I thought it was Hermione too. <laughs> I don't think that's a common name in North America. Is that is that why? <laughs> I, definitely not. I've I've never met one in in real life. So yeah, me neither. It's not just Asian names that are hard to pronounce <laughs> totally <laughs> scottish names british names yeah like everybody everybody's names are it can be it can be difficult <laughs> for sure um so you feature interracial couples in this uh in this book i mean serena and beckett uh who beckett who is east asian I, i'm guessing that's yeah uh, that's what I got from the book. Okay, great. I was paying attention. <laughs> uh, Natasha and Mark, Mark who's uh, white, and then, like you said, Ainsley and Nikesh, who is uh, uh, who is of Indian descent. Uh, did you always intend to have so many uh, interracial couples? Um, yeah, I think that is that's not something I act like plan. It's just sort of a reflection of what I experience um, in my. Um, Previous books, the main characters were their, their love interests were also of Indian descent um, or white. Um, they've had friends who um, had uh, black love interests, um, Asian love interests. Um, it just sort of, I think that there is, and I think this is sort of becoming more talked about, is that interracial couples, the default is white and something else. And while, you know, maybe in my experience, that is a common match, it's not always the case. And so um, while initially I didn't think think about it too hard, now when I write, I, I do think about um, I do think about uh, interracial characters more interracial relationships more critically before I before I put it into the book because I do want to sort of represent the reality of what is happening. Yeah, I definitely agree with the whole uh, if it's an interracial relationship, the the other party is going to be white, and that's the default. Um, I I say this as someone who is dating a white guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, my the, husband the is white irony. as well. <laughs> yeah. And of course, and and that's like a whole different can of worms with uh, like Asian women dating white guys and what our community has to say about that. But I'm not going to get into that. That that <laughs> requires like another hour of of discussion. Um, but I did want to talk briefly yep. about um, Serena's mother, uh, Sandeep. Uh, some of the chapters are in her perspective, and I just wanted to ask, like, why you decided to include those chapters and not just write it from Serena's perspective the entire time. Um, well, Serena is very like, especially at the beginning beginning of the book, she's quite judgmental. Um, she's very harsh with her parents. Uh, she barely talks to her dad. She's very uh, short with her mom. Um, I think there was a lot of room to um, interpret Serena as not a great daughter if we didn't see the pers- other perspective. Um, and I, if Sandeep's, uh, um, those chapters weren't, um, I didn't 
they weren't in my first draft, my editor, you know, back and forth with her, she actually suggested it and it allowed the mother to become a more complex character too. Uh, Serena has also very, she has a lot of strong judgments against her mother's decisions because her mother is a very typical traditional uh, Punjabi wife and mother. Right. And so um, having Sandeep's perspective paints her as a more complicated woman um, for making the choices she's made. And it also allows um, readers to see that Serena actually, in her way, in a very different way than her sister, is a good daughter. And she is trying her best. And she does have very, very good reasons for having the judgments that she has. Yeah, it's always great to see the parent characters fleshed out that way. Because we grew up in a culture that's so different than what our parents grew up with. You know, In our minds, our parents are stuck in their old ways, when in reality, they also have their own struggles for being people who literally went to a different country to try to try to make yeah, it. Yeah, totally. And and it I mean, I think there's something in the book, um, one of the characters says, like, do we ever really know our, you know, our mother or our daughter? And in a way, especially when there's that cultural and generational divide in the home, um, it's it can be hard to see where the other person is coming from. And, you know, largely parents just want what's best for their kids, right? But with a different background and different values, their idea of best, of a good life and a happy life is very, very different often than how we think we'll be happy. Yeah. I think personally, I found that as I've gotten older, they're not as different as we think they are. It's just a matter of perspective. I think it's totally. I think it's mainly uh, communication, right? Because mm-hmm. it's like they understand, but how do they uh, relay that? that message you know um saying like hey like we come from different uh times and cultures but i understand like what you want um and sometimes like the kid will take things the wrong way because obviously sometimes the language um for some some immigrant kids they're the ones who kind of had to be the parent when they came to the country like they had Mm -hmm. to translate for their parents and uh and a lot of the time like the parents are learning about uh, the culture through their kid. So everything is, so the kid is pretty much being the teacher. So how do you, um, th- that dynamic is, you know, it's it's very unique uh, to the immigrant experience because you're not going to get that uh, if your parent and, and the child grew up in the same country, the same community. And, and whatnot. Totally. Yeah. I had a very like um, halfway between, I don't know if I'm technically second or third generation. My parents were both born in India, but they were raised as um, they came over as children to Canada. So while they are very Indian in some ways, they're very Canadian in other ways. Um, so I never had to translate for them, but I know that they, um, they would have had to do that for their, for their mothers. Yeah, I guess that would be what two point five. Yeah, two point five. Two point five. Oh no! Every everybody has a different definition, different number for for it. Yeah. Um. So your book came out last week. Again, congratulations. How has um, how has it been um releasing a book during you know during yeah? COVID? I mean, it's not ideal, but it is what it is. We've gotten had a year now to get used to it. Um. Actually, my second book, Grown Up Pose, came out. March, 2020. So that was, oh, wow. um, 
that was not great. But um, you know what? At the time, uh, the world was, it, it was just too overwhelming what was happening in the world that I didn't, it, it felt kind of trivial to be worrying about my book at that time. But I think, um, I think that we've had time to get used to it. This is just the new normal. And for at least the next months or while, we're still going to be living like this. And um, so I think my, I had those, my expectations in check, everything's going to be virtual rather than in-person. Um, more things will be digital rather than uh, physical. And it's, it's been, it's been really great. I have a, I really love my publisher. I love my editor. Um, I've, I have a great sort of uh, group of people to celebrate. So I, it's been really wonderful. I'm really thankful for uh, books like, uh, like yours, because uh, during a time when it is very overwhelming and we don't know what to expect uh, in the near future, it's nice to read light books. It's nice to read uh, books where um, not everything is, is the end of the world. You know, yeah, for sure. I, I feel I feel like romance novels and uh, light contemporary novels they get a bad, uh, bad rep from from a lot of readers because they're like, oh, it's not considered serious. It's not literary enough. But uh, the truth is, a lot of people read romance novels th- this year for the first time because they they needed that escape. Totally, yeah. And I um, I mean, I hope that is changing. I mean, I read across the board. I love, I love me a good serious literary book, but I also love me a good romance. Right. So it just depends on, um, on the day, the mood, uh, a lot of factors. And I'm, and I'm, yeah, maybe this, this past year has sort of encouraged some people to, to go broader. Yeah. I mean, we always complain about not enough representation on the screen, but there's tons of representation on the page these days. And, you know, we've been covering Asian American authors for almost what five years now and there's just so much content on there so much so many stories and whenever we we read a book that is a lighter like you know not as serious but still a lot of fun I I always find myself really really satisfied with just reading a a fun story about you know people in love or people trying to deal with their lives yeah um thanks and I I think that um you know especially as there's more and more out there like an Asian author doesn't have to always write about um, being Asian or the, or the trauma that they've experienced as an Asian or, or these very heavy things, you know, it can just be um, an Asian main character who is going about their life. And yes, they, there are certain things about their life that because of who they are, are, are more Asian, but you know, love is universal job and career and, existential crises are, 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 um, they're universal. So, um, I'm glad to see that there are more stories that, uh, don't have to be so like if, yes, I'm Asian, but my story doesn't have to be just about being Asian. I mean, how do you write a book that's just about being Asian, you know, because, (laughs) (laughs) uh, it's not, it's not textbook, um, and like we like we said before, like the Asian diasporan experience, it's 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 not a monolith. Uh, yeah. Certainly not even within a very specific subset uh, subcategory like uh, Indian diaspora, because like India it, itself is so diverse. You have so many different dialects, so many uh, different uh, religions as well. So to just box it all in into into one 
category. It's it's impossible. <laughs> for sure, yeah. Was that a struggle for you when you were writing your first few books to impress those differences to your to your publisher, to your editors? Um, no, I mean, I have... Uh, I had a really good publishing experience with Berkeley and with my editor. I think that they understood, you know, who I was and what I was trying to write. Um, and they have a they have a very very good diverse list with um, uh, of authors, even um, amongst like South Asian authors in particular. Um, and my books are, you know, or what I what I strive to write are just books about, um, you know, flawed, strong women of South Asian heritage who are just. Um, figuring out their life and falling in love. And, um, and all of this is informed by the fact that they of course are grew up in, um, in, in Indian households um, within the expectations that came with that and just balancing that as they try and live their lives. And so um, it wasn't something that I actively think of thought about That's Joda. That's how I live my life. When I wrote my characters, how I live my life and, and, and the, my publisher, Liked it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was part of your life. So, of course, it would be natural to to write it. All right. We're coming up to the end of our time with you, Sonia. Um, Rira, do you have any, any final questions? Uh, yeah. So, uh, your first book, you had a character who uh, was single and, you know, kind of wanted to change that. You had a second book that was about a young mother. And then uh, this book was about a woman who didn't want to get married, didn't want to have kids, you know. That done deal uh do you do you have another book in the works with uh, with another uh strong brown um <laughs> female character and uh what path are they are they walking in, in their uh current stage of life uh yeah so um i wrote a book that has actually been moved up and it's coming out this October uh, to come out in time for the volley because the book is called A Holly Jolly the Volley. And, you know, there's so many Christmas romances out there. I wanted to write a uh, seasonal romance that wasn't just about Christmas. It's about, you know, a uh, uh, North American girl uh, like me, South Asian, who celebrates the volley and Christmas. Um, so that's what, that's the theme of the book. And as far as her journey, um, this is a, she's a little bit younger than my other characters. I think I have her in her late twenties and um, she has always sort of done the right thing. She chose a stable career. She lives with her parents. She has a very rebellious older sister. And so she has always been the one who's had to be good, to be the good Indian girl at home to sort of counterbalance her sister. And so um her journey in this book is for the first time going on an impulsive decision of going on a holiday and falling in love with a guy she doesn't think her parents will necessarily approve of. And, um, and, and sort of it's, it's, it's more leaning into the romance side of things. Um, I write romance and women's fiction. The last two books of mine have been more women's fiction. And this one is sort of veering back towards the romance end. I, I love the fact that it's seasonal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like there, Christmas is like when you go when you go on like Netflix, for example, around Christmas, it's it's just like a never ending list. So I'm really glad that we're getting more diversity on on that front. So I'm really oh, excited to read it. Thanks. Yeah, I would love more seasonal. I mean, you know, uh, Christmas slash Lunar New Year um, holiday romance would be great. Like all uh, sorts Hanukkah of romance Hanukkah novel. romance. I mean, I'm, I, there might be some. I don't know any, but like, yeah, just more fun 
holiday romances that are sort of lots of different holidays. Yeah. Serena Singh, uh, Flip the Script is available now on booksellers everywhere. Uh, we've been talking to the author, Sonia Lolly. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Books and Boba. I guess, um, do you have any social media uh, handles that you want to share if people want to follow your thoughts? Yeah, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. And my uh, handle is Sonia, S-O-N-Y-A underscore Lolly, L-A-L-L-I for both of them. Awesome. Well, Sonia, thank you so much once again for joining us to chat about your book. Um, good luck with the rest of your your book tour. And yeah, wish you all Thank the you best. so much for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much. And that was our interview with Sonia Lolly. Her book, Serena Sink Flips the Script, is available now on bookstores everywhere. So please check it out. Um, thank you once again to Sonia for chatting with us. All right, so Rira, remind us what our book club pick is for this month. Uh, we are reading Girls of Paper and Fire by Natasha Enyan. And it is a YA fantasy romance featuring um, girls who have magical powers. And uh, there are certain casts. There's a social hierarchy in ter- uh, depending on what power you have. And... Um, and a lot of these girls are sent to the palace to woo the king and hopefully become the king's consort. That is what I have been told. Uh, but of course, we have not read the book. So it might be different from um, what we have heard about the book. So I have no trigger warnings at this time. Just approach with caution, as always. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, harem politics is very much a staple in at least East Asian fiction, right? Especially when you deal with emperors and such. So, um, yeah, looking forward to chatting about this book at the end of the month. Um, a quick reminder that you can support Books and Boba by purchasing books uh, by purchasing books on our bookshop portal. Uh, go to bookshop.org/shop/books-and-boba. And on there, you'll see a ton of curated lists, curated by Rira, of books by Asian Asian authors. All purchases on this platform goes to support local bookstores as well as this podcast. So, um, yeah, thank you to everyone who's already bought a book on our bookshop. And yeah, that's our episode. Thanks again for listening to Books and Boba. Uh, We'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Seven years. Has, has it been that long? Uh huh. Oh, uh, I was on a fishing boat, 
training. It's part of the plan. Pla- what training? What plan? The, the, the third season of the Korean Drama Podcast! Okay, we're doing this again? Okay, but there's no body switching in this one, right? No! The only thing we're switching is the fact that we're going to watch a good drama this time. From 2020, called Itaewon Class! A story about starting a restaurant and a dish that Koreans love called Revenge. I thought you were going to say kimchi jjigae. I thought you were going to say juke. Those two. Koreans love those two. Listen to the Korean Drama Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.